Hey guys, it's Ellie here. And someone said something to me recently that troubled me. And I want to talk about it. Someone told me that addiction was a choice, not a disease, not a disorder. Now I want to talk about how I disagree. Let's look up the definition of addiction, shall we? The fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. So just by looking at that sentence, so that sentence tells us that you could be addicted to virtually anything. Um, you could be addicted to playing video games. You could be addicted to spending money shopping. You could be addicted to eating. You could be addicted to watching TV. You can be addicted to absolutely anything. You can be addicted to having sexual intercourse. Or you can be addicted to substances, illegal or not. You could be addicted to alcohol. Or you could be addicted to other things that we don't like to talk about. But that all comes down to what addiction truly is. Addiction is a brain disorder characterized by compulsive engagement in rewarding stimuli despite adverse consequences. So let's break that down, shall we? So what this says is compulsive engagement, meaning routine, meaning overusing, um, and rewarding stimuli despite adverse consequences. So meaning you continue to do it because it makes you feel good, even if at the end it doesn't feel as good. or there's something bad that goes along with it, whether it be sickness or sadness or anger, whatever it may be, you continue to do because you're addicted. Now, even after reading the textbook definition of what addiction is, people will still argue that addiction is a choice. People will say, well, you have the choice to put it down. If you wanted to, you could. And while they are partially correct, you can put it down physically. You can throw it away. You can physically get it out of your hand. Okay? But mentally... If you're an addict, it's always there. The crave, the want, the feeling of needing it is always there. So it's not as easy as saying, well, if you wanted to quit, you could. If you wanted to put it down, you could. Physically, yes. Mentally, no. There was something I had been told for years, and that was, you will always be considered an addict. You just learn how to manage over time. And that's true. You will always be considered an addict, whether you're recovering or not. Even if you've been in recovery or you've been sober for 10, 20 years, you're still an addict because you still have that addictive mentality. Now let's talk about that. What does that mean? Well, simple. You take two different people. You take someone who is an addict. 
and that and then you take someone that is simply not it doesn't mean that that person has never dabbled in social in recreational use but it does mean that they don't have the same brain makeup so if you were to take an addict and a non-addict they're completely different the makeup of their brain is completely different the person the people themselves are completely different right so why should their mentality be any right why, why would they be the same of course they're not so that addictive person that addict using those substances or doing those things will heighten the serotonin levels, will heighten their adrenaline, make them feel really good, and their brain tells them, hey, I like that. And then on the opposite side, you have the non-addict. You have the person that just does it recreationally. And, yeah, okay, they do it. They may enjoy it. But they don't feel the need of, I need to do it again, or I want to do it again. They're just like, eh, it was okay. But then the addict, on the other hand, they do it that first time. And it's like something has been awoken. Something was turned on in their brain that tells them, hey... You could do it again, and you can feel that again. And so you're like, okay, just one more time. And then after that one more time, you say, okay, well, I'm just going to do it one more, and it'll be, a fi- it'll be fine. And then before you know it, your body is in survival mode. Because it's no longer fun. It's more as you're trying to maintain some sense of normalcy so to me yes this is a disorder this is just like if you were looking at obsessive compulsive disorder OCD or schizophrenia or bipolar depression it all deals with the brain We would never look at someone that had depression and just say, oh, well, just put a smile on your face. You'll be fine. Stop being sad all the time. Get out and just do something. It'll make you feel better. Or for people that are bipolar, you're just crazy. Just calm your temper. Or people that have schizophrenia oh okay stop thinking people are after you I don't understand you you're being weird just quit or even people that are obsessed have obsessive compulsive disorder better known as OCD we wouldn't look at someone and say You don't have to flip that light switch 20 times before you leave. It's not a big deal. Just stop doing it. You'll be fine. Until they have. So why would we look at an addict and say, just stop using. You'll be fine. Be smart. Make better choices. Because... It's so simple for us to judge when we aren't there, in their head, in their body. It's so simple when we're looking from the outside. But in reality, it's not that easy. And I think we need to have these discussions more often. I think we need to talk about how This is a disorder, this is a medical issue, and it needs to be talked about.
guys. It's Ellie again. Yesterday we talked about what addiction is. And today I want to dive into how addiction has shaped my life. So let's get a little personal. Let's talk about it. So for me personally, I have dealt with addiction in numerous instances in my life, in my 27 years on earth. And I think it's helped to shape me into the person that I am today. In numerous ways so being a kid you don't think about what adults are doing you know you're I think you have sort of rose colored glasses on everything seems so much better than they may have really been so it wasn't until I got older that I realized there were so many people around me that were battling demons And and then I started battling my own. So let's take you back, shall we? Let's go back to 11 years. 11 years old. My mother had just passed away. And my grandmother, my dad's mom had gave my dad some wine coolers, you know, um, and she had told him, we'll just give her one, just give her one, it'll help her sleep, and so they did, so I had my first taste of alcohol at 11 years old, now, as you're listening to this, a lot of you are probably like, oh, well, I had my first sip at 10, or I had my first sip, insert age, you know, or I had, you know, I had done worse, way worse stuff by then, but is that something to be proud of? So, back to that, I had my first sip of alcohol at age 11, and then, fast forward a little bit, my dad remarried, about six months after my mom had passed. Um, We moved in with this woman. She was absolutely terrible, and we'll talk about that in future episodes. But aside from that, so we're living with this new woman, and I'm starting to be that typical, that stereotypical teenager that's acting out, right? So I'm starting to dabble in stuff. Um, I have a lot of friends that are dabbling in things that none of us had any right or reason to be messing with. So I got, I became very smart in the, uh, (laughs) in the topping off alcohol after you drink half of it with water, you know. Uh, Topping off the strawberry daiquiris that were in the fridge or topping off the white lightning or topping off other miscellaneous items (laughs) that were in the fridge. And having a little fun on the side. So, back then, you know, it was the cool thing to do, right? So then, fast forward a little bit, and get out of middle school, and then I jump into high school. So by the time I get to high school, I'm starting to become extremely depressed, and I'm dealing with, you know, self-harm, self-mutilation, um, not really feeling like I was wanted anywhere, because of my home life. My home life was absolutely horrendous and I would never wish the things that went on behind those doors on anyone. And so my outlet 
I found this guy. We'll call him John. So, John was a friend um, that I had throughout high school who was probably one of the worst friends I could have ever gotten. Now, let me explain. So, John knew that I was going through a lot of things and knew that I was feeling extremely lonely. Um, And I think he fed off that because what did he get out of our relationship? Well, he got money and he got to deal to me. So I became popping pills and began taking any kind of pill that I could to not have to feel like I was. So anything that took my mind off of what was going on around me, (laughs) that was a win. I'd always done really good in school. I'd always done really well with my schoolwork and (coughs) was in the top percentage throughout, you know, my school, throughout my schooling until I hit about 10th grade. And that's when things kind of went down. And that was because I didn't really care anymore. All I cared about was not caring. All I cared about was not feeling. So we fast forward a little bit and John became my best friend. And then he was only my best friend when I was buying stuff from him. If I wasn't buying anything from him, then, well, we really didn't have anything to discuss. You know, it was strictly a partnership in a way. So then after that, um, I kind of slacked on using pills um, because I met a guy that was supposed to, I guess, save me in a way. Take me away from all the bad stuff, right? And so we fast forward a little bit. I am 17, just turned 17, and I got married. (laughs) How did I get married at 17? Well, here's the thing. So he was 19, I was 17. He had graduated, I had not. And my father and my evil stepmother they signed off on me to marry this guy. And, you know, this is a side note, but in hindsight, it turned out to be my way of getting out of the house and her way of getting me out of the house. So, we were married. We were married for not even two years. And it was a failed marriage. Um, it was a terrible mistake, but at the same time, maybe not a mistake at all because it did get me out of the hell hole that I was in. So once that marriage failed, I started dating because I realized that I kind of cut myself off getting married so young, not having as many opportunities. So I started dating and I started dating really anyone that I wanted to, right? Having a ton of fucking fun. having a ton of fun and, um, meeting new people and trying to get to know myself, trying to get to know things that I, I never would have thought about myself. And so I met a guy and he had, he technically was part of our life at some point. He dated a couple of people that I knew growing up, and from what I remembered, he was a decent guy. He was a good guy, um, and everything started out great. He was exactly the person I thought I was looking for. Hey guys, it's Ellie. Let's pick up on where we last left off with the guy. The guy that I thought was going to change everything. 
And he did change everything. Just not in the way I was hoping. So I moved in with this guy. We'll call him... We'll call him Terry. So I moved in with Terry. And we lived together for about six months. This was the duration of our relationship. It's a very short relationship, but it was a very volatile relationship. So this is why. We lived together for about four, three or four weeks, and then something happened. I went to work. I came home. And I opened our bedroom door. When I opened the bedroom door, I saw Terry with what I remember thinking was a funny-looking, clearer pipe. I was very young and very naive, and I didn't understand what it was or what it was for. He quickly puts it down and puts the lighter down, and I remember asking him what it was. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason, he just said, it's my medicine. And this other part, I don't know why I didn't ask more questions. Of course I knew that it had to have been an illicit drug. But I loved him, or at least I thought I did, or that I thought I was falling in love with him. And the less I knew, the better. What I, did, what I didn't realize was that I was extremely wrong on that. So... About a week later, he continues to use this, and now he's becoming more comfortable, and he's using it in front of me, um, and I have still had not asked him any questions about what it was or what it did to him or anything, and then I got curious. I became curious in the aspect of I wanted to know, one, exactly what it did to him, how it made him feel what exactly it was and I kind of wanted to try it so I remember asking him while he was in the middle of doing it um, what it was and he looked at me like I was crazy he was like how do you not know what this is well I've never been around anything like this before and so he tells me it's ice it's go-go juice So, it turns out that it was crystal meth. And then I remember asking him, well, how does it make you feel? And he just said it makes him feel great. Makes him feel like he's powerful and he can do anything. And I remember asking him if I could do it too. I just wanted to know what it felt like. I wanted to be on his level. And... At first, he said, no, I don't want you to do this because you're going to go down a rabbit hole that you're not ready for. So then the next night, I asked again because I was still curious. And he let me. So now, I did not really understand how to do this. Um, I remember him telling me, don't hold in for too long or it'll crystallize your lungs because that's what everyone wants to hear, right? That just makes it so much more enticing to do it. So once he said that, I was terrified. And so I go to take this hit and I get scared. So I took a very small little, didn't hold it in, let it go because I was too afraid. And I said, you know what? Never mind. I, I don't want to do it. So fast forward about mm, a week later and I decide I want to try again. I really want to know what this is like. So, I try again. And this time, 
I did it. And I did it the right way for the right length of time. And I felt good. I felt like I could do anything. I had so much energy and I was ready to take on the world and I was ready to do anything and it was amazing. So now, by this point, we're getting closer to the end of the year, getting closer to like Thanksgiving and by this point I've been using for a few weeks now um, pretty religiously and that's where my paycheck was going I was paying for my car and then I was paying for that um, paying to go out and eat and that's pretty much it that's that's where my money was going um, he had lost his job again because he couldn't get up to go to work and things that seemed to be going so well were short-lived so right before right after Thanksgiving right after Black Friday actually I lost my job I lost my job because I stopped going in I stopped going in because I lost my car I lost my car because I couldn't make the car payments anymore. Because the love of my life had used every penny in my checking account and overdrafted nearly $400. And I was still with him. I was still with him and I was doing things that I was not proud of. I was allowing him to do things that I was not proud of. And it started feeling like a vicious circle that I could not get out of. I couldn't get out of what I had created. And so by this point, I've lost my car. I've lost my job um, that I had just been promoted in. So I feel like I have nothing at this point other than him. So I felt very isolated. I had him and then I had one other thing to rely on that was always there for me. But at this point, we couldn't even afford. So he starts asking for money from his family members and he starts asking for money from his friends. And then he starts dealing. He starts dealing to people that I had no right to be around. In hindsight, I'm lucky to be here. I'm extremely lucky to be here, and I'm extremely thankful to be here. But I shouldn't be here. I'm not going to get into complete detail. But the things that you see on TV, the things that people talk about, oh, we did this for this, and we did this to get this. Yeah, that, that shit is real. That shit is so real, and people don't like to talk about it, because it's hard to talk about, because when you try to live your life with no regrets, and you think back to those times, it's hard not to regret that. It's hard not to regret doing those certain things, because you hurt so many people and you can't take it back. So this relationship eventually ended and it officially ended when I woke up one morning, I walked into the living room and I don't know what came over him, but he just looked at me and said, you need to go. And I said, but why? And he said, because this is not for you. And so I left. I left and I reached out to the only person that I knew would not judge me. And that would always love me and would always 
have their arms open for me. And that was my aunt. So I went and lived with her in a town about an hour south. Um, and I started over. Or at least I thought I did. guys it's Ellie so let's pick up where we just left off so by this point I'm living about an hour south with my aunt and I remember waking up the first day in her house in the guest bedroom and looking out the window and seeing this beautiful lake and thinking how lucky I was. How lucky I was to be alive. How lucky I was to have her. Just how immensely lucky I was in general. And I thought that this was going to be my new start. And for a while it was. I had started talking to old friends again. People that I missed for so long. Um, and I started having a decent life. I got a job, started making money, got a car, and then I met a boy. Doesn't it always come back to that? So I met someone where I was working and he had, it was him and two brothers. So, him and his two brothers worked with us, and he ended up leaving and going to a different company, but his two brothers still worked with us, um, and my best friend happened to work with me as well. So, we all become very close, and it was just a good group of people to hang out with, or at least we thought they were. So, we're doing the typical early 20s, you know, we're going out every night, we're having fun, we're drinking, we're partying, we're just living our life because we're single and we're beautiful and we could. So, we start going out with these boys. We start spending a lot of time together. And I remember my best friend kind of hitting it off with one of the brothers. And I hit it off with the oldest brother. And she hit it off with the middle brother. So we start spending a lot of time and at work people kind of knew that we we each kind of had a thing for these brothers and um, we weren't dating but we were having fun which is what your 20s are supposed to be about so I remember getting sucked back in to all the stuff that I had attempted to get myself out of there was one day at work that the guy that um, my best friend was seeing, the middle brother, he had pulled me aside and asked me if I wanted to step out back with him and smoke a little. And I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. It was a rough day and I wanted to blow off some steam. So, I did not realize, because again, I didn't ask questions, because that's gotten me so far before. So I didn't ask questions, I just started smoking it with him. It was synthetic weed. Now, I don't know if any of you have really dabbled in that kind of thing, but that is the most nauseating thing that I had ever put in my body. Um, at first, it was kind of like, okay, it's regular. It's, it's just like weed, you know? It's just like what I've always smoked before. But it was not. So I do this, and I 
had never smoked the synthetic before, but I just smoked it like a regular, regular joint, right? And then I remember becoming completely, my, my whole body was hurting. I was shaking. My head hurt. My stomach hurt. I remember going to the bathroom and getting so immensely sick that I couldn't even stand up. So I sat in the bathroom stall for a good 30 minutes. Um, luckily my shift was almost over and that is the only thing that got me through it was knowing that I could go home. Um, and I vowed that I would never touch that ever again. And I have not, uh, but this is kind of what snowballed everything. So we have that interaction. And then at this time, hey, at this time, my best friend and I had moved out into our own apartment and we, um, We've been living here for a short while and she was seeing the brother, the middle brother, and I was seeing the older brother on and off. So one night I got a text message that would actually, that would end up changing everything. So he messaged me and asked me if I would like to come over and spend the night. Now, as many times as we have been to their home for bonfires, parties, etc., or just to hang out, we had never slept there. We'd always came home. And so I decided, yeah, why not? We've been over there so many times. Let's go over there. What's, what's the harm? They're friends. They're fun. And yeah, okay. So I get to the home and it's him and the middle brother and the younger brother and the cousin and his dad and his mother. And so we go to the back bedroom and we're in this back bedroom and we're all hanging out and we're laughing and it's, we're having a great time. He gets me a drink, and they start passing around a joint. So we smoke a little, and then I remember drinking some of my drink. And then I remember passing out. And I came to, and the door was being shut. Everyone else was leaving except for him. My clothes were off. I was on my period. So my bloody pad was in the floor. And he was on top of me. And I remember trying to move. But I couldn't. And I kept thinking to myself, this is not happening. There's no way this is happening. Just, just get up. You can get up. But I couldn't. And I remember the last thing I said was no. And I still, to this day, remember his voice leaning down close to my ear and saying, yes. Before I knew it, it was over. I don't remember much of what happened during, which is probably a good thing. I came to, I was completely out of it, still. I remember hearing voices in the hallway. I remember him saying to either his brother or his cousin one, whatever happened tonight, just know, or just say I was with you. 
and then I came to enough to text my friend and tell her that I thought I was going to die and to come get me. We all have those moments. We all have a moment in our life that was a wake-up call in some way. This, this was mine. Hey guys, it's Ellie. We've been talking a lot this week about addiction, what it is, and how it's affected me personally throughout the years. But today I want to talk about how it's affected the ones that I love. The first person that I've seen this affect is my aunt, the person that I consider my mother. She would never say this, but she does struggle with her drinking. She is an alcoholic and she has a problem. It wasn't so bad to begin with. She always was a social drinker. There was always a party going on. Um, I think where she started having issues was when she lost both of her parents. She lost my mother, her sister, And then she lost, she divorced her husband recently. I've watched someone so beautiful and so strong and so determined and successful with her own business go so far down. And it's became an everyday thing. It's become something that if she doesn't have a drink in her hand or in her stomach by about 11 o'clock, she's shaking, she's sick, and it breaks my heart because I catch myself thinking, okay, if I text her, It has to be before a certain time. Or if I go see her, it has to be before a certain time. Because I don't want to be around the drinking. um, Because of the person that she becomes. Now the other person that I've seen struggle for such a long time is my best friend. And she is now in rehab for the third time. Um, This time it is something that she chose on her own. So I'm extremely proud of that. Um... She's been two other times. One of the first times we, uh, myself and her mother, helped put her through rehab years ago. Um, And she pretty much did it just for us. And anyone will tell you that if they're not doing it for themselves, it won't stick. And, well, it didn't stick. So the second time was court-appointed after she had her child taken away from her. Um, She was there for roughly six months. And she had a death in the family, and she went, she ended up getting out, going to the funeral, and she relapsed almost instantaneously. So I do have high hopes for this third experience. However, just like we talked about previously, this is a lifelong thing that she's going to be struggling with, um, and that she's going to have to work on each and every day. So with both of these people, they mean the world to me, and I would do absolutely anything for them. 
Now, I'm not going to say that it's been easy over the years because I've struggled myself. And it's something I have to work with every day as well. So you find yourself keeping yourself away, keeping your distance, trying to still have a relationship and trying to show them that you still love them without being so wrapped up in their addiction or enabling them. It becomes exhausting. I've watched both of these people struggle significantly for such a long time. And it hurts, but I would never judge them. I would never hate them. I would never tell them that they're terrible people because they aren't. They have a mental problem that they have yet to work through. And that's okay. Everyone has to start somewhere. And it's it all happens at different points for different people. Now, let's take you back a little bit give you some background on my best friend so she has been she's my age so she is 27 and she has been struggling with her addiction for about 12 13 years um it started while she was in high school and it started out kind of like mine she had Um, she came from a really good family, um, they're really close knit, so it was a little bit opposite of what I came from. Um, she had a hard time in school though. She was picked on, um, and she found kind of the wrong crowd to hang out with, but they accepted her, so she, you know, stuck with them. And they introduced her to certain things. So first it was, um, first it was meth of all things. That was the very first thing, meth and weed. Okay. And then before she knew it, she was on to fentanyl patches. And then she would go back to the weed and she would go back to the meth. Um, and then she found herself falling into one that she fell in love with and that was triple C's so if anyone's kind of questioning what that might be so triple C is cough and cold medication for high blood pressure patients so she would take a significant amount a whole pack of them of 16 and she would have a high that would last for 24 hours after so long of doing this, the highs started lasting shorter and shorter. Eventually, she got to where she could take a box at a time or two boxes at a time and only feel something for about 20 minutes. But in turn, she gave herself high blood pressure. It took her quite a while. It was six years into her addiction before we became close and she broke down and told me. I knew that her personality was definitely different, but it was something that I really enjoyed because she was just so much fun to be around and she was such a good person and she still is. She would give absolutely anything to anyone, for anyone. She would do absolutely anything. Um, She has a heart of gold. And so, it was um, after she had told me about her addiction that she had had for six years at that point that I realized that I never really knew my best friend. And 
So I decided I was going to help her. I was going to help her, and I thought that I was. Okay? So I decided to get her a job. I figured if she was working, then that would keep her busy. And she wouldn't have time for other stuff. Right? Hey guys, it's Ellie. So, where did we leave off? That's right. So, by this point, I had gotten my friend a job where I was working. And I was the she- I was the second shift manager. Um, I got her on working third shift. And where I was working at the time, you had to go through a week's worth of training. Um, and it was actually a test. Um, so at the end of the test, you would find out if they were going to hire you and keep you or um, if they felt that you were not right for the position. So, luckily, the third shift manager was one of my best friends at the time, and um, she had been, so my friend that I got the job for had been going through training, and she got to the last day or so of her training, and then the third shift manager came to me, and he said, the only reason I'm coming to you is because she's your best friend. And I have to tell you that I cannot pass her. So in my head, I'm like, okay, well, maybe she's just not focusing. This is just not the job for her, that kind of thing. Um, And so he tells me that her register is coming up short each night. But not by enough that he thinks that she's taking it, just that she's bad with money management. Okay. So then he tells me that she also had a sexual harassment claim against her. So what had happened was she had gotten the another employee's phone number. Because we all had each other's phone numbers so that we could get in touch with each, um, with each other throughout the duration of our shift um, or to tell each other, hey, we're going to be late. And she had gotten the other employee's phone number and she began sending illicit photos to him. And... He told her to stop, that he had a fiancé, and that he did not feel comfortable with what she was doing. And she continued. And then she sat in the parking lot after her shift ended at 5 a.m. And she sat in the parking lot until 8 a.m. And continued to harass this employee. So the third shift manager tells me that, of course, he cannot pass her as the other employee feels extremely uncomfortable and this is just not a good way of starting so he tells me that of course he cannot pass her um, because of the accusations that were against her and I understood that completely so I was absolutely livid And I confronted her, and she denied it at first until I told her I knew exactly what she had done. And I told her that I didn't understand why, because I stuck my neck out for her. And I felt like she stabbed me in the back, basically. So she broke down, she cried, and she agreed to go to rehab. And this was the first time. So she went to rehab, of course, and she was there for 30 days. It was a very short experience. Um, She got out, 
I went with her to NA meetings and um, and then the person that she was dating at the time felt as though she went to rehab so she's fixed and didn't understand that she needed to continue to go to meetings and such and they were a very controlling person so fast forward a little bit she started smoking weed again and as a way to help her sleep is what she said and then before you knew it she had relapsed completely unfortunately not only had she relapsed back onto her choice drug um triple c's but then she also started smoking meth again so she did this for some time for about a year and she would disappear for months at a time um and she would look worse every time I saw her and then she would straighten herself up and then she would go back down so then she so then after that I ended up pregnant she was there for me the duration of my pregnancy and and then I had my son and then she was there for a short while and then she disappeared when she came back around a few months later she stole something from my aunt and uncle and it was at that point that my son was nearly a year old and I realized that I could not save her anymore that it was time for me to stop enabling her and it was time for her to try to do this and try to make it on her own because the times I tried to help her it wasn't enough so I cut all ties with her and it was extremely it was it was hard it was the hardest thing I've had to do in a long long time so we fast forward a little bit so we went for nearly two years without speaking and then I heard from her again she was pregnant herself she seems to be doing very well throughout her pregnancy she was completely sober she was the person that I remember seeing during rehab during family week she was that person that I remember thinking I've never seen you before this is the person I, you know, I've never gotten to meet. This is brand new, but she's fabulous. And that lasted until she had her child. She had some complications with the pregnancy and she had some complications during the birth. She had to have an emergency C-section and we were not sure if we were going to be seeing her or the baby. So after the birth, she was on a ton of medication. Um, And with an addict, of course, that can be detrimental to any kind of sobriety they may have had. So she reverted back. She reverted back to everything that she had known before. Only this time, she had a child with her. I won't go into specifics, but she did have her child taken away. That child is now with her mother, with her grandmother, and my friend may never have custody of her ever again. So this has been about six months since she lost custody of her child, and um, She went to rehab. Her grandmother passed. 
and she came out of rehab and she reverted back instantaneously so now she is in rehab for the third time this time of course is her choice and I do have high hopes for her because I feel that she deserves the world she deserves to be happy she deserves to know what it's like to be proud of herself and to love herself and ultimately she deserves to have a sober life she deserves to be able to give that to her daughter as well and regardless of anything you have to love the addict you don't have to you don't have to love their actions but you do have to love them talking about addiction for quite a while now. So now I think it's time that we talk about how to help the addict. So first off, we have to know the difference between helping and enabling. So a more hands-off approach is more considered helping being right there with them. And this is what I mean by that. You can help find them some help, meaning professional help. You can help find them a rehabilitation center. You can help find them someone to talk to. You can help find them all kinds of resources, professional resources. Now that is helping. You can help find them meetings. What's not helping, what's actually considered enabling, is by simply being there all the time. And what I mean by that is, you're there all the time, you're listening to their crazy stories, or you're going with them places, or you're taking them places. You're taking them places that, where if you said, no, I can't go there, or no, I'm not taking you, that they may not have the ability to go to on their own. And if they really wanted to, they're still going to find a way. But at least you're not getting them there. Giving them money is enabling them. Helping them get what they don't need is enabling them. You can be there for someone. You can love someone from afar. And that is what I've had to learn over the years. For the longest time, giving her money. (laughs) Giving them money doesn't help them at all. I thought finding her a job would help, but it didn't. It just covered up the problem. And not very well. So I think you have to realize that you're one person. And sometimes you can't do it on your own. Sometimes you have to have a professional step in. And that's okay. Because you do not have to take upon an addict's problem an addict situation because I would not have wanted someone to step in and try to help me on their own I am thankful that I had a really good support system um, that basically just took me away from the situation I was in 
but not everyone has that. So I'm going to give you some ideas of who you should contact um, for someone that may um, have an addiction. And you cannot make someone get help. You can help them realize that they have a problem. But I think it's important to take care of yourself. Take care of yourself mentally, physically. And sometimes that just means you telling them, if you're not willing to get help, then I have to step away from you. And just know that I always love you, but I can't be here for this. And they're going to be mad, and they're going to yell, and they're going to say things that will cut you to the core. But know that they don't mean it. So, I'm sure if you go to Google, you will find hundreds of thousands of different resources for addiction um, and one of that one of those that is the national helpline is the SAMHSA's national he- helpline so it's S-A-M-H-S-A national helpline you can easily google that and you can also call 1-800-662-4357 And you also can call 1-800-487-4889. And that is a confidential, free, 24-hour, 365 days a year information service, both in English and in Spanish, uh, for individuals and family members facing mental or substance abuse use disorders. So this actually provides referrals to your local treatment facilities in your area, support groups, and community-based organizations. So this helps you get um, ideas of places for your loved ones or for yourself. So I just want everyone out there to know that there is hope. And there are options. And I'm thankful for where I'm at now. I still struggle. And I always will. And it's something that until I die, I will struggle with. And it's a day-to-day thing. But I am thankful every day that I get to open my eyes. And I don't think, I don't think that I can ask for anything more. 